we were weren't interested in just changing one book and its environmental footprint. We really were leveraging Harry Potter to transform the entire industry. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire you to be a bit more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please share widely as well. It makes a huge difference for us. And today, it's a great pleasure to welcome on board Nicole Rycroft, all the way from Vancouver, Canada. She is the founder and the executive director of Canopy. And Canopy is a not-for-profit dedicated to protecting the world's forests, species, climate, and supporting indigenous communities' rights by using the purchasing power of the global marketplace. And so without further ado, Nicole, welcome on board. Hi, Alberto. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. Quite the opposite. Thank you for taking the time and for joining us on the Do One Better podcast. So tell me, perhaps we start a little bit with Canopy. What is Canopy all about? Well, as I think you really well kind of uh, surmised our mission in the world, which is to protect the world's forest species and climate and help advance community rights. And we do that by harnessing the power of the marketplace. We currently work with 750 large corporate customers of the forest products industry. So companies like H&M, Zara, Levi's, Scholastic, uh, Kimberly Clark, and we help them to develop environmental policies and then work with them to implement those uh, initiatives um, and in doing so to sort of uh, catalyze change back through their supply chain to ultimately protect forest ecosystems on the ground and transform uh, unsustainable supply. Mm -hmm. So our model of change is based on the business adage that the customer is always right and I don't know about you, Alberto, but uh, behavioral change is a, is a challenging uh, is. thing for most of us. Um, I don't know how many New Year's resolutions you've set and then... You I, know, bro- I broke them all. There you go. That's, <laughs> that is common for all of us. Um, and so, you know, in our line of business, so to speak, um, uh, our work is to change behaviors at a societal level. Um, And changing behaviors, even at an individual level, is a challenging thing. So trying to change the behaviors of 7 billion global citizens that we share this planet with uh, is, you know, it's a a challenging endeavor. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the way that Canopy has approached uh, enabling the 7 billion individuals that we share this planet with um, to make, um, to be able to make more sustainable choices uh, is by uh, working with the 1,000 to 2,000 senior decision makers who work within the clothing companies, uh, the e-retailers, the publishers, um, the tissue manufacturers that we rely on for the goods, uh, mm-hmm. for the clothing that we wear and the goods that sort of populate and, and kind of make modern day life what it is. And so those 2,000 senior executives uh, have, uh, because of the fact that their companies spend millions of dollars every year on paper or packaging or wood-based fabrics like rayon and viscose, they have incredible economic and political influence upstream to incentivize 
forestry companies mm-hmm. and governments to change business as usual practice. And then when they are able to sort of produce clothing uh, in a more sustainable way or publish Harry Potter on 100% recycled um, uh, paper, then ultimately it means that all of us as, as global citizens are able to make uh, more sustainable choices and have a fundamentally lighter footprint on the planet. That's great. How do you engage with these 2,000 decision makers? How do you, is there a, a forum uh, where everybody gathers? Uh, wh- where is the best way for you to engage, well, to identify and then engage with these individuals? So we, we I started Canopy 20 years ago, um, really on uh, with the belief that we could be doing things in a smarter way, mm-hmm. uh, that that there was no need for, you know, 1,400-year-old trees to be uh, logged to make a Jackie Collins novel uh, or the T-shirts that hang in our wardrobes. Um, and so, you know, we have modest roots. I started with an $1,800 budget for the first year. Okay. Uh, That's Canadian so, dollars even. And that's right, which is which is probably about what twenty five pounds, uh, depending on the day. So our work has really involved identifying uh, sectors that have a heavy footprint on high carbon, high biodiversity value forests. Mm-hmm. Uh, doing a power map of those sectors, uh, identifying you know who are the pace setters within those sectors, who are the gatekeepers, and then you know, literally being shameless and picking up the phone and cold calling. Right. Um, and so that uh, that kind of outreach and personal connection, uh, identifying who those champions are within key leading brands um, is still foundational uh, mm-hmm. to the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, if we fast forward 20 years, things have changed quite a bit and, and Canopy has a lot of brand partners uh, that uh, we've been working with for with quite for quite some time, who are very happy to be uh, kind of speed daters for us with their peers. Right. Um, so we do we do spend a lot of time uh, speaking at kind of industry focused conferences, uh, which are good networking events. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned both uh, the fashion uh, industry. Uh, Publishing houses are those two of the main uh, industries where you're you have your target set. Yeah, so we've um, we are probably best known for greening the Harry Potter book series. Tell me about that. I read about that. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, it was a lot of fun actually. So you know, I mean, when it comes to publishing, the probably the two biggest titles are Harry Potter and the Bible, or equivalent religious uh, texts. Um, and we decided that greening Harry Potter would be a lot more fun. Um, and so we, uh, back uh, in the early 2000s, when the fifth book in the Harry Potter series was coming out, uh, we uh, had already started our work to green. At that point, it was just the Canadian book publishing industry okay. because we were still relatively modestly resourced. Um, and so we were working with Raincoast Books, who was the Canadian publisher of Potter. Um, and we basically... Uh, speed dated the publisher with um, a paper mill to mm-hmm. uh, have an environmental paper produced for that print run. Because at that time, when we first started working with book publishers, there were no environmental papers available. Right. Um, and so we were able to leverage both the cachet as well as obviously the, just the sheer uh, economy of scale uh, of Harry Potter and, and the paper kind of sale that was associated 
with that. Mm -hmm. um, cure a paper that was completely free of ancient and endangered forest fiber. Um, uh, we reached out to Jo Rowling um, and her agent. Um, uh, they were very supportive of the initiative. We actually sent Joe an FSC certified Quidditch stick. Um, and, uh, and then she provided a, a statement of support for Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the Canadian edition, which was the only edition out of all the, the, uh, issues or editions of Potter published in the right. fifth installment of the book. But then if you fast forward, another two uh, books to the final one in the series, Harry Potter, the, the seventh book in the series, um, with uh, J.K. Rowling's support um, and the engagement of her publishers globally. Uh, the last book in the series was printed on environmental papers in 24 countries and became the not only the greenest book in publishing history, but also helped trigger the development of 40 individual environmental papers, mm -hmm. many of which are still being used by publishers today, and and really helped uh, be a, it was kind of one of those turnkey moments um, within the industry where we were able to leverage just the volume associated with Harry Potter um, to really showcase that you could uh, publish high volume uh, books yeah. on papers that were environmentally bent uh, mm -hmm. friendly rather than delicate. And sticking with the theme on, on, on the publishing side, what's the state of affairs today uh, in the aggregate? Are, are most books, if I go to a, a local bookshop and buying something that's been recently published, the likelihood is that the paper is what? What would I find on the shelves? There's been a huge shift, which of course was the case for us. I mean, we were weren't interested in just changing the uh, one book mm -hmm. and its environmental footprint. We really were leveraging Harry Potter to transform the entire industry. And that, and it's, you know, it's still a work in progress, but if you go into a bookstore, uh, then the chances uh, that you're going to be picking up a book that's got high recycled content and Forest Stewardship Council certified wood fiber, so mm -hmm. co-certified virgin wood fiber, uh, is very high. In fact, you'll have big publishers like Penguin Random House in the UK, where about 85% of their books now um, are high recycled content and FSC. Right. What What are the logos? What are the um, What should a customer be looking for if they're uh browsing through the bookshelves of a bookstore and thinking, I'll buy this if it's environmentally friendly. What, what will determine whether that book is or isn't? Uh, so it depends on the market that you're uh, in, okay. but it will either be on the copyright page uh, or the back cover, um, and it will either state that it's uh, an ancient forest friendly Mm -hmm. uh, printed on ancient forest friendly paper uh, or that it's printed on uh, recycled uh, and or FSC uh, paper. Okay. So the markets are still not harmonized. Is that right? I mean, there's different um, benchmarks or kite marks, as we would say here, depending on the, on the market that you're operating in. Yeah, it's, a it's just a little different, whether it's, you know, uh, a North American bookstore that you're walking into or uh, a UK bookstore or mm -hmm. European. Mm-hmm. And on the other area that you mentioned in terms of fashion, and you hear about fast fashion and uh, the impact that has on the environment, and one question I have, one question many people have actually, is how do you, if you're a well-meaning consumer and you go into a store and you want to buy something that's not truly negatively impacting the environment, 
what is it about an article of clothing that might lead you to understand whether it is or it isn't uh, having a negative impact on the environment? Yeah, so um, fashion, as, as many people are aware, has a massive environmental and social footprint. And so it is challenging uh, when you go into a store to be able to tell uh, you know, whether a T-shirt that you take off the rack comes from somebody who has made a living wage mm-hmm. uh, with be, it being produced or whether it contains viscose. Um, there is an ingredients list uh, on the tag that's inside your mm-hmm. clothing. Um, uh, it's just it's a little bit more um, uh, opaque as to what that label actually really means oftentimes. Right. When, when you look at a product in store, uh, you generally, I think we're generally more familiar with what it means if it's got aspartame in it or if it's... Uh, or if it says clearly that it's organic. Mm-hmm. So um, many brands now have what I guess would be the equivalent of organic uh, collections um, within, their, uh, within their broader uh, offering of clothing. Um, in big fast retailers, uh, fast fashion retailers like H&M and Zara, they have eco collections. Uh, but increasingly, even at the volume that they operate at, they are drawing those environmentally preferable materials through into uh, an increasing percentage of their inventory. And so generally what consumers can find, and I think brands are getting better at telling the story about what's in the clothing as well, you can find if it's organic cotton, Mm -hmm. uh, you can find uh, out whether it's made with recycled polyester. And we started working with the fashion industry seven years ago. And we basically took the work that we'd done in the publishing industry and on Harry Potter, and we adapted it to other sectors, the newspaper industry, the magazine sector. And seven years ago, we found that fashion um, was a major driver of deforestation and forest degradation, Mm -hmm. Um, that, that there were 200 million trees disappearing today into fashion, into viscose and rayon and modal fabrics, and that it's slated to double within the next decade. And so we felt that, you know, um, very often as an environmental activist, uh, you're dealing with the train that has already left the mm-hmm. station. Mm-hmm. And it's not that 200 million trees from Indonesia's rainforest or the boreal forest is a small environmental footprint. But what we felt was that we had the opportunity to build a fence at the top of the cliff rather than a hospital at the bottom, which is so often Mm -hmm. the case that we're dealing with, and that we had the ability to redirect the viscose supply chain to be more sustainable before billions of dollars of new mill infrastructure had been built in the middle of the Amazon or the Russian boreal forest. And Mm. so we had this ability at this inflection point to disrupt the systems. And so... We started working with brands, and to, to be honest, to start off with, a lot of it was education. Mm-hmm. I, like, I think for many of us, it was a surprise to us uh, that viscose and rayon actually was derived from forests and from, from trees. That thing that's tall and can give you a splinter actually ends up as that soft, silky fabric next to your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we started reaching out to brands and designers 
icons within the industry, pace setters, gatekeepers, so Stella McCartney, H&M, Zara, Eileen Fisher, Levi's, working with them to develop uh, environmental policies that committed to eliminate the use of viscose and rayon fabrics that originated from ancient and endangered forests mm-hmm. uh, to give a preference and really help catalyze these next generation solutions. So rather than clothing that we're, we're done with wearing ending up in landfill, having that become the next uh, season of clothing. Uh, We publicly launched Canopy Style uh, six years ago, and we've literally gone from zero to 200. We now have 213 brands on board. Those brands represent about $260 billion uh, in annual revenues, and so significant market heft. And as a result of those brands working alongside of us, you know, from the Stella McCartney's uh, to the targets of the mm-hmm. industry, we've been able to uh, secure similar commitments from viscose producers that represent 85% of global production. Wow. So within a relatively short period of time, we've been able to secure what I would say is you know, a, a tipping point of change uh, within this global supply chain. Mm-hmm. And that's now translating through to, you know, 30% of this global viscose is now verified as being low risk of coming from ancient and endangered forest. We have communities that have had traditional lands returned to them. There are moratoriums now in place on really high carbon value, critical habitat for caribou uh, and orangutans. And we're seeing the very first next generation solution fabrics, Mm -hmm. these kind of fabrics that are fundamentally more circular in nature and have a fundamentally lighter environmental footprint starting to come to market. So at the end of last year, we had three of the world's top five viscose producers come to market with viscose products that have between 20 to 50% recycled uh, textiles as the raw material. So, Wow, congratulations. And um, what does it look like when you engage with a new customer. So one of these fashion houses, for instance, uh, they retain you and what happens next? Uh, Do you have an audit? Do you, what's the, what's the, the flow of activity? What's the process? Yeah. So we, I mean, we do a lot of our work obviously, uh, with companies, Mm -hmm. um, but we don't enter into a financial relationship with any of the brands, uh, or producers that we work with. From an integrity perspective, uh, that's just felt that it's a really important piece uh, to our work. When we sit at the negotiations table, even though you know we're currently a, a two two and a half million dollar organization, and we sit at the table with you know companies like H and M and their twenty yeah. billion a year in revenues, we sit at the table with a sense of we bring value to the table, and so do they. And this is a transformational partnership uh, that we're building together. Mm-hmm. And our ob- observation is that oftentimes uh, when a check is slid across the table, that it becomes more transactional. Right. Um, and, and our brand partners uh, really, uh, they engage, like they, they work alongside of us to engage their suppliers to fundamentally change their practices. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we just take money off the table. Um, and when we say, you know, H&M or Stella McCartney are doing a good thing for the world's ancient and endangered forests, then, you know, we want people to know that they really are actually doing something really positive rather than, you know, 
we just got cut a $200,000 check. So when we start working with brands, uh, it really, it starts with a policy uh, commitment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so putting in place this kind of foundational document that regardless of whether there are transitions within the team, the company is formally committed to taking leadership on environmental issues and to reducing their footprint on the world's ancient and endangered forests. And then we work with them to develop an implementation uh, plan, identify where they have sourcing risks within their supply chain. There's a lot of work uh, that we do in a pre-competitive space. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we find that you know, even though we work with really large brands globally, uh, no single brand can transform an, a supply chain by themselves. Um, and I think that's been the power of the model that we've developed over the last 20 years. Um, and it's, in, it's exemplified by the work that we've done to transform the Visco supply chain in such a short period of time with Canopy Style is the, the power of collective action. So mm-hmm. having brands standing as peers alongside each other to really shift the dial on these big global environmental issues that we're grappling with in a pre-competitive space. And so that's that's a big part of the work that we do as well as we develop tools and systems, and then we convene our brand partners uh, so that it's not just one voice in an uncoordinated uh, fashion. Mm-hmm. And do you find now... I imagine I know the answer, but 20 years ago, many of these companies did not have a chief of sustainability, head of sustainability. How well-versed are the people running sustainability at these companies? Well, as as you're probably not going to be surprised, it really varies. Mm-hmm. Um, we we do still work with a lot of uh, companies that don't have sustainability, dedicated sustainability offices mm-hmm. um, uh, or directors. Um, the fashion industry is different. Um, I, I think, you know, for ever since uh, child labor became an issue, uh, yeah. the fashion industry have built expertise in-house to deal with social and, you know, more recently environmental performance. And, you know, as you may have caught uh, the former director or head of, of sustainability at H&M has just recently been appointed as their CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, within the fashion industry, uh, sustainab- sustainability teams are uh, quite developed. Um, within some of the other industries that we work with, like the publishing industry, even within some of the sectors that use a lot of packaging, which is our uh, kind of our most recent uh, campaign initiative, you have, you know, people still trying to manage sustainability, you know, off the side of their desk or as part of a, an already quite crowded portfolio, which uh, does make it more challenging. And I think that's where the value of organizations like Canopy really comes to play. Mm-hmm. It's not that, you know, I, I may be a professional tree hugger, but I'm not the only person that cares about clean air and clean water. People that work within these large global brands care just as deeply about their the air that their children breathe mm-hmm. as I do. And so we, in essence, are a little bit of an kind of outsourced sustainability experts mm-hmm. uh, that enable the executives working within these brands to really leverage their time and the purchasing power that they have to drive as much change as possible. Do you find most of the people running sustainability in the corporate space 
that they come from the commercial functions of that specific company and then take on a sustainability role, become more educated in sustainability and, and, and move that way? Or is it now individuals who come from environmental, sustainable expertise who then enter that commercial space, irrespective of what sector it might be? Uh, historically, it was definitely the former, mm -hmm. um, moving from other uh, sides of the business and into sustainability. Increasingly now, we have people that are coming, you know, from university into sustainability positions directly. Uh, I think both bring merit and strength. Uh, there's a real value to having people within the sustainability departments that have deep knowledge of the business model. Um and kind of how the economic decisions get made uh, within their businesses or operationally, uh, how things work. And, and then obviously it's also a real asset for us to have uh, sustainability specialists uh, in-house as well as, as champions. And it must be a two-way street. I mean, these, these corporates are learning from you, but every corporate you're dealing with means that you're getting insight into slightly different reality a slightly different sector and learning from that oh absolutely i mean every uh every company has a different culture has different processes even in the same industries uh that they're working in and uh and so it's all i i mean that's one of the things that's that's really rewarding sure. about our work i mean we're very outcomes focused and i think we're able to measure our impact very consistently um and so that's rewarding um and working with businesses they tend to be very entrepreneurial their outcomes focused as well um so that marriage works quite well uh but also just getting insights and in under the hood uh with so many uh different companies that approach you know like essentially the same business mm -hmm. uh, but in very different ways with different corporate cultures it is something that i think has actually helped me as as the founder and executive director of canopy to build a stronger organization and, and culture within canopy as well sure and so how do you derive your income if uh, how are you funded if you're not uh, charging for your advisory services to these corporates how do you generate your income to stay afloat to be able to cater for the the cost base that you surely have yeah so uh we have an entrepreneurial model of change and, and we have a very uh classic philanthropic uh model okay. of revenue so um we receive 60 percent of our revenue base from foundation partners about 30 percent from major donors okay. um and then we have a small earned revenue stream we run forest uh, tours to the landscapes of hope that we work in mm -hmm. um, and uh, some of the work that we've been doing on on catalyzing next generation solutions at scale um, has led to us uh, doing you know a special edition print run of a Margaret Atwood book um, and we've been, we've been lucky to receive the um, proceeds uh, from those kinds of initiatives. Now you'll know the statistics better than I but the uh, the amount of philanthropic uh, generosity that's allocated to climate it's actually negligible right it's in the single digits maybe two percent maybe three percent it it is uh, it's in the low single digits yes uh, three percent is is on the generous side of what goes towards uh, climate and environmental funding which I'm I'm always uh, shocked and surprised by. Um, 
because having clean water and fresh air is a fundamental human right. And I, I think when I when I think back on 2019, I really think of it as the year uh, that I think the broader there was a broader consciousness shift that mm -hmm. we have a climate crisis and we have uh, you know like that we're experiencing this precipitous decline in biodiversity and. I think part of the challenge with the work on climate has probably been, you know, like it's hard to really, uh, there are a lot of numbers that pertain to climate. You know, there's one and a half percent, uh, there's one and a half degrees, there's two degrees. I always think of it as, you know, if I had a, if I was running hotter, like if I had a two degree temperature, I'd be at home in bed and I'd be feeling really, really sick. Um, and yeah. that's that's essentially the scenario that we're running uh, with the planet at the moment, which is why my homeland, Australia, uh, is on fire at the moment. It's why we saw the Amazon on fire last year. It's why you know we have these incredible swings in in extreme weather. And it's why there are millions of young people out on the street uh, calling for action. And mm. and so parallel with you know the freight train that is that is known as climate change we also have been experiencing this precipitous uh, decline in species that we share this planet with there was a report last year both by the UN as as well as by the uh, London Society of Zoology that kind of sent a very clear kind of alarm bell that uh, around the number of extinctions that we're on the cusp of uh, and that we that we share the planet with 60% less animals uh, than we did in the 1970s, and so I think you know it's it's a sobering context for the work that we do, and so I, I do find it surprising that there isn't more philanthropic giving uh, to environmental issues, and I think the scientific community is pretty clear that the countdown's on. We've got 10 years, you know, between now and 2030. Uh, it's a really key decade uh, for us to turn it around. And I think there's absolutely no reason why we can't have a full-scale transformation of the unsustainable industries that are uh, that are exacerbating the the climate and biodiversity challenges that we're currently experiencing. Mm. Somebody would like to find out more, if somebody would like to get a hold of you. Uh, what's uh, what's the website address? What's the best way of getting in touch? Uh, whether somebody's a philanthropist or somebody's a sustainability officer, or just somebody who wants to find out a little bit more. What's the what's the website address? Sure, it's uh, canopyplanet.org. Mm -hmm. Are you feeling optimistic about things for the next ten years? As we, uh, how are you feeling about the state of affairs? I feel optimistic. You know, I work on these issues every day, and so you know, I come across a lot of really. Uh, sobering headlines but i'm i have a personal philosophy that no one likes to join the army of the glum mm. uh and so canopy's always been really focused on solutions and so yeah. how can we drive solutions at scale i think we have a, a track record that that shows that we can drive solutions at scale and so our focus between now and 2030 is to really uh you know, we feel compelled to step up the the impacts, the scale of impact that we have. Um, scientists have been very clear that uh, protecting forest ecosystems represents 30% of the climate solution, and forests 
uh, a critical habitat for 80% of the world's terrestrial species. So uh, there uh, is a need for us to be uh, protecting 50% of the world's forest by 2030. Mm. Uh, that's what scientists are calling for, and so that's what Canopy is working towards. Uh, we are going to be transforming unsustainable supply chains. Uh, obviously, we'll be looking to um, really uh, capitalize on the strong momentum that we have in the viscose supply chain with Canopy Style. Uh, just last October, we launched the our new Pack for Good initiative, uh -huh. which uh, is focused on transforming uh, the massive footprint that packaging has on the world's forests. So when people think of packaging, they often think of plastic, uh, but there are 3 billion trees that disappear into packaging every year, uh, and that's growing. And so we're working with brands to basically transform that supply chain uh, to be fundamentally more sustainable and uh, take a holistic approach. And for us, that means uh, the role of next generation solutions, uh, these alternative fibers uh, that fundamentally alleviate the stress off forest ecosystems are going to be really key. Um, so smarter design. Uh, um, and then in Davos, uh, we actually uh, launched a kind of a 10-year action plan uh, to see 50% of the current kind of wood fiber uh, that's used to make paper and packaging and viscose basically transferred over to relying on waste textiles that are otherwise degrading in landfill, agricultural residues that are like wheat straw that's often burnt. 40% of the particulate matter of the air pollution in Delhi uh, is, because of, is the, because of the burning of straw. Um, and then there are these funky, really cool technologies of microbial cellulose, which is basically just growing cellulose in a test tube through a fermentation process. Um, so we've basically mapped out, here's what it's going to take. Here's the, you know, the amount of investment that's required. Here's where these mills could be located based on where there's agricultural residues in abundance, uh, waste textiles in abundance. Um, and uh, we have support from a number of our brand partners uh, for that. And, you know, when we started ad advocating for next generation solutions, uh, 15 years ago, uh, I can't tell you how many times I was called girly uh, by uh, folks in the forest industry. Um, but uh, we now have the first uh, modern day straw pulp mill in North America has recently begun operations. It's in Eastern Washington state. It's, uh, it uses, it's got, it's uses 90% less water. It's got half the ecological footprint. Um, it's the first of many straw pulp mills that we're mm -hmm. going to see. Uh, we have, as I mentioned earlier on, three of the top five viscose producers now producing commercial uh, product that relies on waste textiles uh, rather than virgin wood fiber, um, which fundamentally carries, obviously, virgin wood fiber carries a fundamentally higher carbon and biodiversity footprint. And so uh, I think we're really well poised. We've developed really strong and focused market demand. We work with the disruptive technology innovators that the cool scientists that have been working for decades in laboratories, uh, we're, we're basically pulling them through to market with pilot trials, um, helping connect them with finance. Um, and we're working towards creating a pool, the equity fund to really just help compress 
the timeline to bring these. Uh, Excellent. Tell me, what's the um, what's the key takeaway if you wanted our listeners to walk away with one thing, remembering one thing after today's episode? What would that be? We're at a critical juncture um, as as humanity. And so I think our times really call on us to be more audacious and to take risks. We can't just keep doing the same things um, and feel frustrated that we're not shifting the dial fast enough. So whether whether we're a philanthropist or a social entrepreneur or uh, an in, you know working within an NGO, uh, we have to be uh, bolder and we need to be willing to be uncomfortable. Yes, absolutely. Nicole, it has been a very enlightening and very sobering conversation. I hope you have uh, tremendous success with engaging with ever more and an ever-increasing number of corporates as they seek to reassess their um, their carbon footprint. And, um, and to our subscribers, thank you very much for listening. Nicole, thank you very much. Really appreciate it and very much enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks. Likewise, Alberto. And uh, good luck with the rest of your series. I really enjoy how you're curating this. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm -hmm.